All right, and we are live on Twitter and YouTube. So welcome to another episode of Hardship, the now of leadership and us. I'm Mila Dushon and have my fabulous co-host Annalisa Ponsky with me. I bet you point the right way because <laughs> there you go. Oh yeah, it's you. <laughs> How are you, Annalie? Not too bad. How are you? I'm well, thank you. It's, it's sunny today after a massive, massive rain. Um, I, my car got a free car wash, so that's good. <laughs> yeah, it's cold and windy out here. It's like 37 in here, here in Chicago. So yeah, so yeah, Anneli is in Wisconsin, and I am in Western Virginia, and we are doing this remotely and live. So we are live today on on Twitter and on YouTube. Please use the hashtag Hardship, as you see below. With questions and comments, uh, it will be easier for us to find your comments as well. And we have a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant guest for us today. He walks the walk and is a practitioner of hardship, where you lead from the heart through innovation, creativity, kindness, love, and in visionary ways. He is an education evangelist. So let's welcome our brilliant guest, Jamie Cousin. Welcome, Jamie. Thanks for having me. How's it going? Good, good. I absolutely love the background. So it looks like a music video. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no, I so I work from home uh, on a continuous basis anyway. So I just was preparing for a pandemic and didn't know it. So I have all the equipment to broadcast from home to to be in my bunker, if you will, for the foreseeable future. <laughs> I like the word that I use a bunker. <laughs> yeah. It feels that way. Yeah, yeah. But no, it, uh, but it's interesting, you know, even though we are in our bunkers, people are, are, are doing creative things, right? Uh, like I see, I've seen an uptick of videos and especially on TikTok, like everyone has got a TikTok account now. Uh, right, <laughs> right. Doing live shows. But I'm really curious to learn more about you. I, I mean, we've had a conversation and, and I kind of like stopped you on LinkedIn uh, because I absolutely love what you're doing. Right. Uh, and I know that you walk the walk. You're such an uh, education evangelist. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you get into the education space? Yeah, so so I have been the, well, I've been at Google for the past 14 years and probably the last 10, the chief education evangelist. And it all started by accident. I, I got into the space because I was trying to solve a problem with uh, Arizona State University and they had an email issue. Uh, long story short, we eventually launched what we used to call Google Apps for Education into the university space. And ASU was the first university to use these tools uh, at the university. Fell in love with the space, got more into it, then got into this idea around launching Google Apps into K-12. We did that. And then a couple of years later, I had a, uh, an idea of launching Chromebooks in education. So we've been part of the education space for a very long time. I've been in the education space on, on a global scale across the board. But what happened while I was going through this whole journey, I realized uh very early on that as we were talking about equity issues and as we were talking about technology issues and access issues and all these other issues around education, um, I realized that there weren't a lot of voices in this space that, that were like mine in the sense of my background, right? Because I am a first-generation American. I was born and raised 
in Hell's Kitchen, New York, back in the 70s and 80s when it wasn't the greatest place to be. And uh, education was the reason why I get to sit here and talk to you guys. So for me, education has been that ticket, if you will. Now, I can make one of two assumptions. I can assume that the reason I've been successful and been at Google for 14 years and Accenture for seven years and I have a college degree and a master's degree, I can assume all those things uh, because I have a 500 IQ and that's what my wife thinks I think. Or I can assume that there are millions of students just like me out there. and we need to understand why they're not successful. We need to understand why we don't have as many people like me in these positions of influence and power and those types of things. And so I think that luck plays a big part in all our lives, but what we need to do is eliminate luck as a requirement to success for students that are growing up in poverty and under not the best circumstances to say it positive, as positive as I can. And, and so for me, being an education evangelist is, isn't about technology, it isn't about education policy, it's this idea that through education, you can accomplish anything. And through education, whatever, however we define that, and by the way, I think we're going through a phase right now where we're going to redefine what that looks like. Mm -hmm. Through education, um, you can accomplish anything and and never before in a time in in history has education been so available and and so for me that's where the evangelist role comes from it's about bringing the good news of education if you will i love i love that you touched on so many points especially you mentioned about equity and access right so let's talk about that because when we touch on equity and you know it's often misunderstood and in taking as equality, equality, right? right. Uh, and equality does not equate to equity. And how does equity look like in the education space? Right. So, so when it's important, that's a good point to define the difference or tell the difference between equity and equal and and equality. Equality means everyone has access to the same stuff. Equity means that we need to recognize that some people don't aren't starting at the same point, and so they need more. Uh, uh, more of a support structure in place to do that. So what we need to do as education isn't look at a room full of 30 students and say, we need to treat them all the same, which we need to do. But what we need to do is understand that 10 of those kids um, are starting at a point where let's say they're starting in kindergarten where they can read, they can write, they can do X, Y, Z, they're great. And then you have 10 kids in that room who might um, are living under stressful conditions at home, might be abused, might not ha might have parents that don't have uh, an education, might not be able to read and understand that you can't just give, say the same book to the, those 20 students and say, you all need to read at the same time. What you need to do is understand that 10 of those students are going to need more support and they're going to need more help. And so it's finding the resources and the policies to focus on that equity part of it and and what do we do in that space and that's that's i think the place that we need to spend a lot of time focusing on i love that you mentioned and highlighted this very important point you mentioned about in a in a group of 30 students right 10 students might have stressful conditions at home and this is something that we as leaders or not it this just does not happen in the united states it happens at a global scale, right? right. I, 
I remember going to school, I encountered the British education system. And I remember in primary school, I was such, I was called the stupid child, right? Stupid student, because I, I would get zero for maths. I got zero for science. And, right. and you know, and that itself caused stress for me. And we failed to identify from the extended lens of how a child learns and what are the factors that there are so many variables that undergoes that impacts the child. I know, Anneli, you have been in the school system and you taught in Arkansas, right? So, yeah. I mean, what have you seen to, 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 to Jamie's point, the stressful conditions at home does affect students in how they learn? Um, not that I want to uh, make Jamie seem like he's wrong, but I think that I do agree with you. But in the sense is that, like, I think that sometimes you're saying like a third of the students be having like troubled backgrounds. And for some districts you have in the district I worked in, 99% of my kids were living in poverty. So I think that we also need to look at like how it's community based. You're looking in a lot of schools that don't have access to like Wi-Fi rural districts who are just getting access to these things, who have access to to technology. And you're not just looking at the fact that they're, I mean, you have kids, I had kids who had to take care of children. I had kids whose parents were on drugs. I had kids whose parents worked, you know, two jobs and they had, I mean, they were the ones getting their food. And when you said that, you know, you're, you know, you work to get Chromebooks in school, I even had like a kid steal a Chromebook because he needed diapers. For his baby. So I think that it's just, I think we need to look beyond just like the school. Usually when you have places that have so much poverty, they're food deserts. So our kids don't have access to good food. It's there's combination of like, you know, you have, you know, more kids go having police contact. You have communities with high police contact. And what does that mean for kids and their relationship with authority? they're going to probably be like have not much trust and like authority figures or feel like they're not really out to actually help them, that they're out to hurt them. Um, you have places like with chronic unemployment. What does that mean? That means probably higher instances of trauma. So you're going to have, have, you also have environmental like inequality. You're going to have places where there've been like maybe former factories. Um, maybe there's like waste plants there, which impact the environment, which kids live in. So it's not just the fact that there's education inequality. It's all of these inequalities working together to make it, I want to say, just not really a good situation for a lot of kids. And how do you overcome just not one instance of inequality? How do you overcome all of them? Because they work in tandem. They really do. And you know, if you don't have access to food, how good is your education really going to be if you're only eating, you know, hot chips? It's right. a really sad situation because we really have to. And I mean, there's school districts where everyone is literally like on state aid because there's just no money there. Right. Right. I, so I was using just to be clear, I wasn't saying I was using a statistical analysis, right? The third, the third, the third, not that. Any school is set up that way. It'd actually be great if a school was set up that way. I just right? wanted to really kind of point out to listeners that like it's not like, you know, a third is not, you know what I mean? I no, don't want no, no, yeah. That, that number is that number. Yeah. Like, because there's districts where it's like 100% of your kids oh, are absolutely. literally living. I, yeah, I, like, so I want to show people like it's dire in some yeah. places. No, I, I, I live in downtown bad. Phoenix and, and they're mostly Title I schools here in downtown Phoenix. And actually, if you look at the statistics, um, more than half our students are living in, in the defined level of poverty, right? So that that's more than half our students. So, so yeah, so that you, if you take a school district, it's the entire school district. So then the equity issue then, because so, so the, I was using the classroom example, but then it becomes 
Um, then it becomes the school example. If one school is in a poverty district and another school is in a rich district, mm-hmm. then it becomes a state issue. If one whole school district is in a in a bad issue and, or, or in a bad state and another one is in a good place, right? Then it becomes a federal issue if there's a whole region of school districts that have issues with poverty and and issues that are going on there versus a region that's not. So it, it depends on where you take the equity lens to start looking at it, right? So you can look at it from the federal level, the state level, you can look at it from the district level, the school, the school level, and even the classroom level, right? That's the point mm-hmm. is that equity is an issue across all those. And it depends on what level you look at it from that it becomes a, a big problem or not, right? It depends on, on what you do. But I believe that so, so we can look at this as a glass half full thing and, or a glass half empty thing. And for millions and millions of students, and by the way, I get to talk to thousands of students a year. So I, I'm in class, not only am I in classrooms, I'm like right now, as a matter of fact, right after I get off of this podcast, I'm actually talking to two different classrooms today. Um, it's cause I sent out a, I sent out a, um, request. Uh, through a YouTube video on my YouTube channel for educators to say, hey, if you want me to come talk to students, I will just set it up and we'll do it. And I had a lot of requests for that. So I'm going in and talking to students. I, I, My point is that, you know, I grew up under those circumstances. I grew up on welfare. I grew up on food stamps. I grew up with a single mother. I grew up with all those things. And when, when people ask me, you know, how did I get out of that? Um, I, I talk about why well, I, I was lucky to some degree, but at the same time, I understood what it took to be successful, what it, what I needed to do. And education was one of those key elements. I guess what I'm getting at from a glass half full perspective is that in 19, you know, in 1980, when I was 13 years old and ready to take on education, my education opportunities were, you know, textbooks and the library. Mm-hmm. Today, we have an amazing opportunity to to level the playing field, to bring equity through the resources that we have because any student can learn lots of different things. Those other Maslow hierarchy factors need to be addressed. But if you do address those, the ability to learn is tremendous. And, And so that's where I'm trying to focus is how do we create opportunities for our students to really thrive in the environments that they're in given the constraints and the circumstances that they face. That's a very interesting point that you brought up, Jamie. You know, thrive in the circumstances and in the environments that they are, are in, right? And sometimes, like you mentioned, there are so many situations and equity, you know, pertains to so many different environments, so many different variables as well. So, and it, it just seems like, you know, approaching education as a whole, not just in the United States, but from a global perspective, right? Like in third world countries, uh, to promote education, uh, you know, a lot of countries or in school systems, they do not have technology and, you know, they depend on books or they depend on this program right. where, uh, exchange program where you go teach in a different country, right? They depend on educators of that sort to come into their countries and to bring different kind of education to expand that knowledge. Uh, and it's not a gatekeeping knowledge, right? So that brings me to the next point from an ed- education perspective. Uh, like you have mentioned, leadership has a solo connotation. So how do we shift that perspective right. from a solo perspective to a collaborative mindset to 
to beat those inequalities where equity is not present or access is not present. Yeah, and that's and that's a great point. And also on an understanding here that we are these issues are across I get to travel around the world and the issues, whether they are on the on the bottom of the Maslow hierarchy of needs or on the top of the Maslow hierarchy of needs, the issues are the same, no matter what are the conditions and what you're looking for. You mm-hmm. find these conditions everywhere. You find them in more um not exaggerated that's not the right word but in in bigger ish in bigger ways you're finding them in countries uh like in africa where you know when you go through nairobi or you go through tanzania and you see you you think you know you i when i was there i'm like i thought i was poor right like like the conditions (laughs) increase dramatically depending on where you are but that that being said, let's put that to the side and think about when you know when you talk about leadership, what does leadership mean? How do you define leadership? And I think one of the issues when it comes to leadership is that it feels like this solo activity, right? It feels like this thing that you do on your own. When in reality, I think if we looked at it from a collaborative perspective, we might we might get more done. We might be able to to focus on more things, right? Because I think part of the issue. And this is one of my theories, and I'm probably wrong, but one of my theories here is that education has always been set up as a single-player sport, right? My 18-year-old is responsible, was responsible for his grades, his assignments, his tests, his, you know, everything was about him, 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 him. He's accountable. He's responsible. And all those things are important. Absolutely. But imagine my 18-year-old was sitting, you know, in high school in a classroom and uh, they were taking a test, and at the end of the test, they went up to the front of the classroom to the teacher, and they said, "Hey, look, we were sitting back there, and I was we were doing this test, and I realized that there were some answers that I knew." And then I looked over at her paper, and I realized that there were some answers that she knew. So we decided to combine our skill set and work on this test together. Here you go. What would the reaction be to that, right? Like when you say that, in a, and I and I do a lot of keynotes, and when you say something, tell a story like that in a room full of administrators, educators, they're like, "Oh my goodness, that's cheating! I lose my mind." Why are we teaching students that finding people who are smarter than us is cheating, right? When that's all I do for a living is find people who are smarter than me. We need to focus on real collaboration, right? Which is the ability to change your mind, which is something that we desperately need right now. The ability to build consensus, right? So one of the things that Google looks for, for example, when they hire people is we look for leadership. That's one of the categories. But back to this idea of the definition of leadership, do do you think we mean by leadership, do you think we mean, can we tell, can you tell people what to do and they follow you out of fear, right? Like, no, That's not what we're saying. What we're asking is, can you collaborate, right? Can you build consensus? Can you motivate? Can you influence? Can you, can you, can you let someone else drive, right? Like those are the like real collaboration, the ability to change your mind, the ability to ask questions, the ability to to have empathy, and and the ability to take a step back and let someone else lead. Like how do we take those factors of real collaboration and put them in our education model so that we're building collaboration so that when when they become future leaders, that's how they see leadership, not as something that I am as an individual responsible to, but 
as a team sport, which it should be, which is I, I work with other people to get things done. And I think you'd find more of this collaborative world as opposed to the single world that we find today. I love that you mentioned it, uh, the single wall, right? And that, whatever that is said, you mean like asking and collaborating is not, it's not cheating. That's so true. There's so many times in school systems, well, I did not experience primary and secondary school in the United States, but in, a, in the British system, it's, it's like everyone sits in one, the classroom is like single table. It's like rows. You can't look around. If you look around, it's like you're cheating. Why are you talking? Right, you can't discuss with your friends about you know. Oh, what do you think about this question? And I would like my teacher would take a ruler and hit my knuckle. Right. So I like, hell, I'm just how am I supposed to expand my thoughts, <laughs> right? And right. and that's not collaboration. And you highlighted collaboration in the means of asking questions, having empathy. Uh, you know, just collaborating. And I watched this movie, uh, Mark Zuckerberg. I didn't even watch the movie for. For 10 or years and I, I accidentally <laughs> bumped into it on Netflix and in one part of the movie he talks about how uh, for his art class he put up the art image onto Facebook and just asked his friends what do you think about this and he was highlighted he was like highlighted as cheating teachers thought like he was che uh, cheating but that's not cheating right collaboration comes in the form of asking collaborating ideas and not stealing ideas right so i, I want to like right. dig a little bit deeper into how can empathy pan out as leaders you know in the education system like how does it look like how can leaders really truly support <clears throat> empathy and not just like have a cheap shit right and right. say, oh, this is what I'm going to do in the workplace. And then when I go home, I'm just going to crumble it out and throw it in the rubbish bin. So what does right. empathy really look like? Yeah, you know, empathy is one of those interesting words for me because we, we talk about it a lot or we try to define it. And the reality is, I think empathy is like anything else that you're born with. I think some people are born with lots of empathy and some people are born with little empathy. Empathy, And some sometimes you can work on it one way or the other, but... It's so I have three kids, right? I have a 27 year old, an 18 year old, and a five year old, right? And yeah, so I, I, I don't, I only like one kid at a time, right? So I, <laughs> I, 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 I like one at a time, and now they're all home and they're driving me insane. So the, so when when you when I look at the three and I and I reflect back at them growing up, I think about my 27 year old when she was five. And her empathy level is was interesting. She was very competitive. You know, she would, you know, knock if she would knock you in the head with a baseball bat and and you'd like fall over and, and she'd be like, come on, you're fine, get up. Right. Like she was that kid. And then this five-year-old, my my second, my third five-year-old, she yeah, this is a true story. The other day we were reading one of those like cartoon books about planets and um, and at towards the end of the book, it's you know these drawings of the solar system, and Pluto is out outside the solar system, and it's a little cartoon picture of a planet with a sad face. And my five-year-old starts bawling because she's sad that Pluto's not included in the solar system. That she's sad for the planet Pluto, like it's got feelings, right? So that. That's her level, and we, you know, my wife and I talk about this all the time. She's got an insane level of empathy, right? So 
I think you're born with a certain level of it. How do we assess? Do we know how do we how do we assess empathy? Right? How do we know what level of empathy we have? And then the second question for me that I'm curious about is, can you improve on your empathy and how? Right? How do we take my older five year old, my my 27 year old when she was five, and say no, 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 you just don't. It's, you got to worry about what they feel like, or, or you know, whatever. What are the what are those things that you can do to work on empathy? Because I don't think that that empathy is a, like anything else, right? Is a skill that is the same across the board. I think you're born with a different level of empathy depending on who you are. And and yeah, we can talk about environmental factors and we can talk about family factors. But in my case, same same kids, same family, different levels of empathy depending on 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 who they are, who what their personality makeup is. I think that, when you're kind of talking about education, Mila, um, I think if you ask like a lot of teachers like what they would probably change and let you know, keeping in mind like the teachers that I've worked with and the teacher I've been is just what is the purpose of education? I think that a lot of times that we get kind of lost in like what is our actual purpose here because whenever you go to like any part of the year, there's testing where it's just like you need to have your data in. I know that when I worked every two weeks, I need to data into the state because the state comes in. Every quarter you have like your prep for ACT testing. Um, then every year you have your like state standardized testing. So I think it's you lose your empathy when you reduce people to numbers. And I think that you can see that all across the board, like beyond education. Think about when you do like, I think about other people when they do like their yearly reviews, it's like you're quantified. Mm -hmm. So is there a lot of empathy when we're quantifying people? Are we looking at like those qualitative characteristics? So I think it's just how do we view people? How do we view our purpose? I think that's like the biggest, just what is the purpose here? And I think you lose your empathy when you're just see people as like, modes of production rather than like actual human beings. That's really interesting that you mentioned about, you know, empathy is being reduced when you start seeing them as data, as numbers, right? And this translates really well. This modality translates into the workspace, into communities, into religious practices as well. Whatever that is happening in the education space transfers because those students, those children are, are uh, you know, taking in, they are absorbing whatever is being taught to them or happening in the environment. And that kind of like translates. So this like makes me ask the following question. So should we be introducing empathy in the education space? Just like, you know, when you graduate out of school, you do not know how to do your taxes. <laughs> no. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I didn't know how to do my taxes. That was not a thought. So, and the same thing, right? When you go into the workforce, like, learning about different personalities and, and being kind and understanding that kindness is not weakness, right? But empathy goes a long way and that's the kind of leaders that we want. So are we missing that huge gap in education spaces where we are not teaching or not speaking or introducing about what empathy is? What is it like to, to treat other people or to value other people? How does this fall into the education space? Yeah, so so I I think it's a balancing act between looking at data and looking at information and looking at people as individuals. You know, look what we're going through right now. I I I haven't I've been on on calls all morning so far since seven o'clock this morning, so I don't know what the latest numbers are. But 
I'm making up a number, right? Let's say, you know, uh, 10,000 Americans have died from COVID-19. I don't, I don't know what the actual number is, but let's, let's just use that as a, as an example that that's a number, right? 10,000. And you're like, wow, that's a big number. But if you start trying to dive deeper into that number and you realize the number of people affected and it can get overwhelming. If you start saying, Hey, we're not going to look at it as a big number. We're going to look at it as individuals. You'll get four people in before you just lose it, right? Because of all the impacts that it has and all the things. So it's this balancing act between looking at big numbers and looking at big data. And then at the same time, uh, trying to be empathetic about what those data, what that data actually means. And, and so I think it's important to find what that balance is. But more importantly for me is getting to the root cause of things in question. So you mentioned you know, standardized testing and prep tests and all these other things that, that people work on. I want to know what, what, what are we focused on, right? To your point, like this whole thing around testing and this whole thing about assessments isn't about students at all. It's about adults. And so if you look at education as, you know, back to your question about what's the purpose of education and, and the purpose of education for me is to prepare students for their life then the testing part all of a sudden doesn't become that important. As a matter of fact, all the data, all the research shows you that testing doesn't do anything, right? The, the idea that it's done the wrong way. So quizzes work like doing something, uh, like learning something and then ex experiencing it and failing at that experience, which is in, in, a, in its own way, a, a test, that works, right? Uh, but taking a test, like memorizing three chapters and then take, memorizing all the key phrases and words and facts and figures and then taking a test and then getting those results back three months from now, that doesn't work. There's, we're not paying attention to, you know, talk about real data. We're, we, we have data. There, there's, no, there's no mystery here. That does not work. And yet we continue to do it. Why? Because it's not about the students. It's about the adults. It's about, to your point of, we need that data to, for pay performance. We need that data to fund schools. We need that. It's where, where is the student in all of that? So I think that even before trying to figure out how do you take big data numbers and create empathy around it? Like, let's ask a bigger question, which is why do we have those things at all? When, if we focus on our students, we should be the question we should be asking ourselves, especially through what we're going through now is what are the most essential things that we can focus on in education for our students period. That's such a powerful <laughs> thing that you said, focus on students, and, and and that's so true, right? And to a point, you know, we are just so uh, we are living in a in a data driven world, mm -hmm. right? Uh, just to get funding, and you need to prove everything. If not, you do not get funding. Departments in universities get shut down, right? right. Like a diversity department gets shut down, multicultural departments get shut down, and saying that. Oh, that's not important. But when you treat all this thing as isolated departments or isolated teams or isolated variables, then we right. will never have a cohesive, um, a, a collaborative environment, right? And this brings me to the next question. Collaboration, right? We want to work in, in the collaborative space and, and empathy pulls in collaboration, you know, education pulls in collaboration. Now, does collaboration promote groupthink, though? You know, when we want to collaborate, and this happens in the workspaces 
right, uh, even in group discussions in universities and school spaces, where when you get together in a group, everyone's like, oh, let's collaborate. And a one dominant voice says something and everyone kind of like agrees with that person. So does it promote uh, groupthink? How can we break group thinking in whilst collaboration is happening? Yeah, that's a great question because I, I think it, it it leads us to discuss or to question how do we define co collaboration, right? How do we define these elements? Because in education, one of the things that I talk about is when I talk about collaboration, I make sure I'm clear, and I think this is the perfect time to do this as well, which is I'm not talking about groupthink, mm -hmm. right? I'm not talking about um, uh, projects, right? And what I mean by that is the current model for collaboration is you take one paper that one student can do, but now you assign it to four students and four students have to work on that paper. And three of them pay that one student to actually write the paper and, and that person writes it. That's an environment for group think. That's an environment to get one voice be the dominant voice. Let's say they all want to participate. The the dominant person is going to drive the that that, assum that assignment and the and the content for that paper. That's that leads to group think. Real collaboration is when you have a a, a certain skill that you're bringing to the table that only you can do. And when you have that kind of environment then you can't have group think because it's your skill. So for example, and I hate to use sports as an analogy, but if you think about a, a basketball team and man, this week the NBA playoffs are supposed to start and I've never mm. been sports more than I'm missing them right now. I love the NBA. Okay, I'll get off on that rant for a second. But Are you, huh? are you a Knicks fan? Do I have to admit that publicly? Yeah. <laughs> 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 I, I, unfortunately, yes, I am. But uh, but I live here in Phoenix, so I follow the Suns too. But I'm just a basketball fan, right? But but the but if you think about a sports team, you got a point guard, you got an off guard, you got a center, or you, the traditional model right? it doesn't exist. But you have everyone playing a role, and they play that role. You can't have group think. You can't have all of them rebound at the same time. You can't have all of them shoot at the same time. They all have to play a role. So in the world of work, if you can create the teams that you build matter, right? The, the, are you putting in a group think work or are you putting in specific skills and roles that people can play? But because if, if you do that, you're not going to get group think because everyone's playing a specific role and, and that's their expertise or that's their area. And they're bringing that, they're bringing that perspective to the table. So it all comes down to how you set it up. I love that. I love that you used the sports analogy as well, because Anneli is a huge sports fan. Not, not, everyone, not everyone is, but sports works so well in so many different situations, right? It's like the ultimate collaboration. And I think that that's what I think I just bought myself. I played sports since I was a little kid. And it was like once you really learn that like each person, you know, maybe there are people who aren't as strong as like other people, but you realize that they still contribute, that they have to. And I feel bad for a lot of kids haven't really experienced sports in like that sense, having like a, you know, a good environment because it really does teach you how to be a team and how to find strengths in people like regardless, cause you need them. By, by the way, and, and, and people talk about sports and kids needing to play sports. I think it's anything that creates that model. So for example, um, playing online video games does the same thing as far as mm -hmm. I'm concerned, right? Like, 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 
You know, we look at video games as this negative thing. My generation, old people like me, look at like, oh, these kids are playing video games because of our perspective about video games is Pac-Man, right? And when you actually think about Pac-Man, Pac-Man is the biggest waste of time in your life. Now, I believe that I have never been in a car accident, knock on wood, because of Pac-Man, because my reaction skills are so fast. But in, in an overall like development, there's not a lot there. You're just going around in circles and doing the whole thing. You're just eating. My 18-year-old my, my is, is developing collaborative skills. He's playing roles. More like just like sports. One of the greatest things about sports is just-in-time feedback, right? Like you know, you, you miss a rebound and the point guard, like a Steve, I got one of the blessings for me from a sports perspective is I got to watch years and years of Steve Nash play basketball. Right. And I would just, I would go to games and just like a camera focus on him through the entire game. I watch entire games. Of, I was a point guard, just focusing on Steve Nash. And like, he would go up and just whisper something in someone's ear. Like talk about just in time assessments, talk about just in time feedback. And more importantly, talk about like, that's done. Now let's move on to the next thing, right? Like, like you can't do anything about that. You screwed that up. Now let's, let's learn from that. And then let's do it better the next time. And that kind of environment also exists in the esports world, for example, right? So, so this idea of the skills that you're developing and building through that can be done in lots of different ways if the conditions are the same or the or or pretty close. I love that you mentioned about games because I used to play World of Warcraft. Uh, it's a it's yeah, a no no, no. I, I'm I'm just impressed that you admit that publicly. That's cool. <laughs> no, <I'm not. laughs> I used to play World of Warcraft and it is such a collaborative game, right? Mm -hmm. And I used to have uh, a, a guild and I used to be the guild master, and and that translates really well into identifying. You need to identify every person, your team members skills right everyone would play either a mage or a hunter or a paladin these are all the characters in the game right but still, even if someone plays a mage or a hunter the way that they skill up like you can play a mage you can play either a fire mage or arcane mage or a ice mage right and the skills that they distribute strengthens or brings certain types of skills to the game so it was really important for me as a guild master to identify okay you are a mage what kind of mage are you what kind of strengths are you going to come and play and we'll go into dungeons dungeons is more like a quest where you have the and boss where you have to kill the boss so right. when we go into the dungeon you can't like just charge uh, everyone at one time you need to have the warrior go in charge first sure. you know like hold get the monster's attention and then the fire mage or the arcane mage and sometimes the fire mage can't do damages during a certain time in the game because right. that monster will be immune so gaming sports everything highlights a very important perspective into collaboration well like, it, i was sorry i was gonna say it this theme that we're that we're developing here is this idea around you know the single player versus the collaborative team-based thing. But also, it doesn't mean that a collaborative world does not mean leadership goes away. Actually, it, it means the opposite, right? And so, for example, in sport, and sports is a great way to highlight this, right? When, you know, think about football and an offensive football team and how everyone has to play their role perfectly. But there's still a leader, right? Tom Brady, I'm a Giants fan, so I'm actually, I like the Patriots because... 
the Giants always beat them in the Super Bowl. That's just going to get a lot of bad comments. But Tom, <laughs> Tom Brady, Tom Brady, at the end of the game when they lose, he's like, "That's on me." No, it's not. It's not on him, right? But he's the leader. He he's responsible. But he could never do his job unless they were in a collaborative environment. But he still takes the accountability and the responsibility, even though it's not him. So you, it's a great way to show same thing with Steve Nash, who I I've seen tons of his interviews after games when they lost, like, yeah, that was on me. I, I missed the play. No, it was, you know, it's everyone, but that's, that's a great example of you can have both. You can have a collaborative environment and, and have that individual accountability leadership that you can have both at the same time. And sports is a great way to show that that's possible. Yeah, because you made me kind of think, because I'm a big hockey fan, and I noticed that you guys have the Coyotes out there, which have some yeah. of my old players yeah, yeah. Um, from the Blackhawks. And what I think is really interesting, too, is that leadership doesn't always have to remain stagnant in, like, who the leader is. Because mm-hmm. I think about so many times when, like, they'll talk about, like, the Blackhawks, they'll talk about how, okay, so this game was particularly bad for, like, defensemen. So, like, Brent Seabrook will pipe up and, you know, essentially say whatever needs to be said guys. Right. And then you might look at the next game. Okay, so the goaltender is saying something. I think it's also knowing that we can be leaders at different times, uh-huh. that there can be, that we each have it in us. So can we be a soft leader? Can we be very, very intense leaders? And I think it's just, we can have situational leadership. And I think that's really important for people to remember too, that you don't always have to be the leader all the time or that you don't always have to be in the room that you right. know your voice is heard and, it's important too. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, that's the whole point, right? Is that you can have both at the same time and back to the idea of real collaboration and, and leadership is the ability to know how to take a step back and, and let someone else lead. I love that point that you said that you know, leadership is about collaboration and knowing when to step back and let someone else lead. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and, and that includes empathy and kindness and self-awareness um as well to to lead effectively from the heart and i know that we're running out of time and jamie i would like to to hear your thoughts you know you've been in the education space for 14 years yeah and <laughs> i see you like <laughs> I, I'm, I know I, you warned me about the final part of this and so i'm, I'm starting to prepare for that azella <laughs> come here, come here. <laughs> yeah go ahead i'm sorry ask me that last question and then, so and this is like, and that's what we like our guests to be as natural as possible to show their true side. So this is so fitting. <laughs> right. So, oh, hello. Hi. What's your name? What's your name? Azella. Ooh, what a cool name. Like, it sounds like a warrior. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So. Yeah. Coming back to like the education space, you know, what what thoughts, what kind of uh, positive thoughts do you have to say to students, especially in the education space and to educators about leadership and anyone can step forward? Like what kind of thoughts can you give to enable students? Yeah. So so sit here for a second so I can answer this question. The the um, I think. You know, look, I'm a huge fan of educators. And and I'll tell you this, I've worked in education, I've, I've worked in technology, I've worked in electronics and high tech. I, I, I was at Accenture, so I worked for 
a project with United Health Groups. I worked in healthcare before joining Accenture. I worked for Governor Cuomo, the first Governor Cuomo. So I worked in government. And I can tell you that without any hesitation, that the most, not only important, but the most passionate and dedicated workforce out of any workforce are teachers, are educators. You can make an educator cry in 30 seconds, right? You cannot make a hedge fund manager cry in 30 seconds. It's just not possible. And that passion and that dedication needs to be utilized. We need to think of it. So when I talk in education, I talk about taking advantage of that, of like, you, you got them, they're bought in, right? They're in. So how do we turn them loose? How do we give them the autonomy that they need to create the best environments for our students instead of always pushing down to them, you know, you need to do this standard and you need to do this, or we can't trust you to do this. And I think this environment here that we're going through, you know, we got to start looking for the blessings and all this. And I think one of them is this idea that leaders in education would be like, oh, look, these teachers are doing this from home. They're doing it on their own. We're not controlling them. They're creating these environments. Our students are doing X, Y, Z. So I think you'll start seeing uh, potentially, hopefully, again, glass half full kind of guy, This, some of these things come out of this, which is these that educators have that opportunity to, to do that. And the last thing I, I talk to educators about, and I, and, I, and I do this with them as well, which is who is your fourth grade teacher? They'll tell you in an instant, right? Like, who is your ninth grade teacher? They'll tell you in an instant, like, and then, I, and then you ask a person in the business world, who is your first manager at that job that you had working in a grocery store? And I'm like, I have no idea, right? Like that's the impact <laughs> that educators have, right? Like that you remember who your fourth grade teacher is, yeah. right? Like that's huge impact. Like, like as an educator, whether your students like it or not, they're going to remember you for the rest of their <laughs> life. Right? And that's a huge, that's a huge responsibility to take on. So if you take those two factors, where we can give leaders an opportunity to show, to, to, to give teachers the tools and the resources that they need to thrive, and then we can turn them on, we can turn educators on to our students, then we can get an amazing, I think we can get some amazing results from that. Beautiful, that's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing your brilliant insight, your expertise, your heart set, and your mindset on hardship. And it was great meeting your daughter as well in life. Yeah, what, <laughs> happened, what happened to the dance Only element of this? Oh, now the dance is coming on. So I already <laughs> boogie. You ready to dance? A little. <laughs> <laughs> A little. <laughs> so folks, every podcast we end with a dance. And okay. we, we try to... A lot of our guests are embarrassed by it, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let me pull out the music. Okay, show us your best moves. All right, right. Oh, oh, your... Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, let me increase the volume, and then where's the sound? These are my dance moves. <laughs> <laughs> okay, are we ready? Hey, Adela, come help me. Uh, All right, okay, she doesn't want to do it. She's, she's more embarrassed than I am. <laughs> all right, all right, that's all you got for me. <laughs> Thank you for bringing I'm more than a finger. Great. Oh. Thank you guys. Thank you guys for having me. Thank, Thank you, you very much. It was such a pleasure having you. All right, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.